morning, church. It's been a minute since we've been together, at least with us, with you. We had a snow day a couple of weeks ago, and we were gone last week as we heard from uh, our global outreach partner, Dr. George Renner, encouraged uh, by that message. And, and here we are now gathering again together. And if you happen to be visiting with us, we're so glad that you chose to be with us this morning. We hope that you are encouraged uh, by our time together, encouraged towards Jesus, and encouraged by each other around We hope to be able to connect with you further, and so uh, if you wouldn't mind grabbing one of those welcome cards and filling out our connection card, you can scan the QR code on the back, and that would be great. We'd love to connect in that way. Last fall, we started a series in Revelation, and we got into it, and we're we're just finishing up now this morning, chapter 3, so we haven't gotten very far, (laughs) and there's a lot more to go. Uh, We've had a few interruptions. Well, not necessarily interruptions. We've had a few planned visits away from Revelation as we had our Advent series, and then we've heard from two global outreach partners. And and so we're in a portion of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, that cover seven letters from King Jesus to the church. And we are considering the very last of those seven letters. So Just because of sort of the disjointedness of us going through these seven letters, I just want to quickly remind us of what we're looking at in this. Seven, again, is a a number that means something in the Bible. The Bible is filled with a lot of symbolism and metaphors, and seven means complete or whole or total. And and also, these seven churches are in a region of what is now modern-day Turkey. And and in fact, if you were to look at them on a map, they, they make a circle where all seven are. And so, these letters that King Jesus is giving to these churches, definitely relevant to them, important for them in their moment, but also it's all seven are really a picture of the entire age and stage of the church. So they're always going to be relevant for us, and hopefully they've been relevant, encouraging, and challenging for us as we've moved through them. And so this morning we're going to wrap them up with the last one which happens to have maybe the most stinging condemnation to it. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, a letter to Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would, you that, would that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve the, to oint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, let's take a moment to pray.
God, as we come to your word and, and re-engage here in this last book of the Bible, we certainly need your grace at work, your power of your spirit at work in our heads, our hearts, in this time in which we come to it. So be with the preaching and the hearing and the receiving and the believing and the trusting and the clinging to your word for your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Coffee drinkers, of which I am one, are inherently snobby. Or maybe, maybe picky is a better word. Or selective. There are those in this room who violate coffee and put in a cocktail of sugars and syrups and flavor shots. And there are those who remain pure, refined, dignified, and drink their coffee black, no sugar. Amen. Yes. There is also a whole world of coffee, or excuse me, cold brew coffee drinkers. And I, I found that they kick up the snobbery <clears throat> pickiness to a whole new level, waiting weeks before they drink their cold brew. There is apparently a distinctiveness to cold brew, a, a different approach to the richness of flavor in a cup of coffee. Of course, many of us prefer our coffee hot. We can nonetheless see what the cold brewers are after. But there is one thing that will unite all coffee drinkers, and that is room temperature coffee belongs in the drain and not in your mug. If you were to grab that mug expecting hot coffee or cold brew and it was room temperature, it was tepid and gross, you would definitely have a gag reflex. That is the appropriate response to such a thing. The church in Laodicea was room temperature coffee. Its witness in its community was room temperature coffee. It was gross. It made you gag. It's the stinging truth that might be the most stinging truth leveled by King Jesus in these seven letters is that the church here was so complacent it was gross. Think about that for a moment. So complacent about the glories and greatness of God it was gross. So complacent about the goodness and and, and kindness and mercy of God, that it was gross. That stings. Here we have an analysis by King Jesus that there was a complacent gospel zeal that rooted in the heart of this church. And that they were exhorted to pursue a gospel renewal that they would be awakened back to the greatness and glory of God brought to us by his goodness and grace. They would be alive to that, hot or cold, and we'll get to that in a moment. And yet, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this, this condemnation of a, a complacent church and the exhortation of gospel renewal, there's still yet this promise that King Jesus will work in and through them. He's, he's calling them back to him. 
this church who got lazy. And so we find here, as we consider this last letter of these seven, that there are times in which a church enters into a season of complacency. Therefore, it is a time in which the church needs gospel renewal. And as we move through our passage, there are some things that we find here that, that we as a church will always need. We always need to strive together for. And that is first, that we would have a renewed perspective of Jesus. That we would see Jesus for who he is and what he really is. That our perspective of him would be renewed daily, weekly, as we are sharing life together and as we gather together, that we would see just how big of a deal he is. That we would then also have a renewed passion for the gospel. Do you guys realize, I know you do, so it's rhetorical, but do you realize that the sovereign God over the entire universe has made a way for sinners to be with him for all eternity? That we'd have a renewed passion for the gospel. And then from that, the overflow of it, this renewed perspective of Jesus and a renewed passion for the gospel would lead then to a renewed purpose for mission that we would not take lightly, but we would actually delight in and treasure the opportunity to be on mission, pointing people to the same king that we're so enraptured with and, this, and, and give to people the same message that has rescued our hearts and our lives. That we would have a renewed purpose for mission. And so the church needs gospel renewal, always. And the reason for renewal, this need for gospel renewal here with Laodicea and many times for the church at large and, and maybe even for seasons for Trinity is that complacency has dragged the church. It's dragged it. It's dragged it down. Consider verses 15 and 16 again with me. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Very interesting description here. A couple of things that were going on here for Laodicea. And hopefully if you noticed as we move through these seven letters, Jesus, King Jesus is using something contextual to that city and location as sort of a launching pad, a word picture that launches into the spiritual truth. And so what's going on here with Laodicea? Well, Laodicea was adjacent to two cities. It was really close to a city called Heropolis. And Heropolis, this neighboring city, had these hot springs that provided nutrient-rich hot water that was used for medicinal purposes and care. And so it was, it was kind of like hospital water, if you will. As, I don't even know if that exists. That doesn't exist. But anyway, it was medicinal use. Further away was the city of Colossae, which we have a, a book in the Bible, Colossians, that's addressed to that church. And it was known for its rich, refreshing cold springs that actually provided cold, life-giving drinking water. But Laodicea didn't have either one of those. Laodicea tried to route some of the cold water to their city, but could only manage to get tepid water to arrive. And you couldn't really drink the much more accessible hot springs water because that water would pr produce nausea. 
In fact, both this tepid water that they were trying to pipe in and the hot spring water really kind of upset everybody's stomach. It was neither hot, used for medicine, or cold, used for refreshment and life-giving drinking water. The water that they had just sort of wasn't either one. This means this church was carrying on that same characteristic. Something about its witness wasn't medicinal. Something about its witness wasn't refreshing and life-giving. It just was there. Tepid. Gross. So that means the unbelievers around the church in Laodicea were receiving neither healing medicine or life-giving refreshment from the church. Whoa. This isn't about our passion. Be hot for God. No, this is about our witness. Are we, are we living out a renewed perspective of Jesus? Are we living out a renewed passion for the gospel? Are we living out a renewed purpose for mission? Are we being the witnesses of God's grace in our community, in our area. The call from the king then was a call for gospel renewal that leads to this renewed perspective and passion and purpose in the church. And before we look at those three things, we need to first consider that very famous, mostly taken out of context verse that we read. And that's verse 20. Let's look at that again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We have if you've grown up at any period of time in college and ministry over the last 30, 40 years, you've probably been involved in some sort of campus ministry or maybe a campus ministry has connected with you and that was part of your story and so you get to share your story, how a campus ministry had connected with you and that was when your life sort of life, light bulb went off on who Jesus is and your life was radically rescued or maybe you just were always involved from the jump. At some point, you were probably trained or heard some sort of storyline of, of being able to present the gospel to people, and along the way, this verse was used as, a, as sort of an evangelistic tool. Not necessarily what's going on here. What's actually going on here is Jesus is standing at the door of a complacent church, knocking and calling out to them, open up. I'm pretty amazing in this gospel I have is incredible and it's life-saving. This is amazing work. Open up. Stop lounging around on the couch doing nothing. Wake up to the privilege that you have at being the witness to this glorious grace of the gospel. The verb that are used here are actually ongoing action verbs. So when it says, stand at the door and knock, it's that he's still standing there, still knocking. When it says he's calling out, and and if anyone hears his voice, he's still calling out, hey, I'm right here. King cares deeply for his church. Cares deeply For those who are his, who have not yet heard, cares deeply that we witness to his goodness and his grace and his glory. And he is so gracious to keep standing 
and knocking and calling our name. That we, too, need to hear this. We, too, need to have a gospel renewal. We, too, need to be reminded afresh again and again of how great Jesus is, how great the gospel is, how great this mission is. I know that life can beat us down and wear us down and exhaust us. I get it. I feel it too. And that is another reason why we need to be renewed. We need gospel renewal. So let's consider these quickly together. First, a renewed perspective of Jesus. If there was ever a note to write down anywhere in your Bible is this. Jesus is a big deal. Understatement, sure. Jesus is a big deal. He's a big deal, and the big deal is seen right away in verse 14. There's some titles, three titles given to Jesus. Three titles. So verse 14, and the angel of the Lord, sorry, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Those three titles, the amen, the faithful, and the true, are all rooted in the Old Testament. They're all rooted in passages, important moments in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. You can find them in Isaiah 65, 43, Proverbs 8, even the very first verse of the Bible. You find the rootedness of them in the Old. And all three have carry with them very important aspects of why these titles are a big deal. First is, they are always attributed to God. So when you look in the Old Testament and you find these titles, they're attributed to God. So whoever has this title must be God. So already we're getting a sense that the the divinity of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is, is addressing the church. Secondly, we find that all three carry the important aspect that they all point forward or toward God's redemptive purposes being fulfilled. So when you find these in the Old Testament, they're anticipating the day in which the amen is fully realized, that God fully realized all of his purposes and accomplished all that he set out to do. And then thirdly, these characteristics are to also then be true of God's people, but We know God's people can't fulfill God's redemptive purposes, so so the one who has the threefold title must have done it all and done it all for God's people. So what we see here just in the beginning of this section is that Jesus is a big deal because he is God enfleshed, fulfilling what God promised and purposed to do on behalf of God's people who have failed tremendously. Staggering. The nature and character of God's grace, its power and mercy. This king, this one with this title, is not a rep or an emissary or an ambassador. It is God himself. Not And he's bringing forth not the possibility of redemption, but actual redemption. And he's not doing it from a distance. He's drawing near all the way down into our reality. This is the king. This is King Jesus. This is a big deal. 
This isn't a really great guy, a really good teacher, somebody who led a movement that's had long-lasting effects. No, this is the king of the cosmos. God purposed in eternity past to bring about redemption in time and space, and King Jesus is the one who made that happen. And King Jesus now reigns and rules over all things and will one day return to restore all things. That's King Jesus. Is that our perspective of of this Jesus that we have? Or is this Jesus that we have in our head and our hearts a small little whatever Jesus who brings about a little whatever change? Or is it the King Jesus who fulfills God's redemptive purposes and will one day restore all things? We have that perspective. As we go through the trials and hardships of life, as we go through the ups and downs as a church family, as we navigate through pandemics and and pastoral changes and all sorts of things, right? As we move through life, experiencing the things of life, do you have a small Jesus in mind or do you have a very big deal over the entire cosmos Jesus as your perspective? What is that saying? Small Jesus, big problems. Big Jesus, small problems. Doesn't mean those small problems aren't hard. That just means our perspective matters Like, crucially. So when a church gets complacent, it's lost its perspective. It needs gospel renewal. It needs a renewed perspective of King Jesus. Complacency in a church can reveal laziness around knowing the greatness and glory of the King. Or a distractedness for lesser things, lesser glories. Complacency is not necessarily the cause, but it is certainly a significant symptom of a lost perspective. To combat complacency, then we as a church family, taking seriously the warning that King Jesus gives here, we must Together, strive to keep Christ at the center of our worship, at the center of our community, at the center of our mission, that we keep holding up and holding out the sufficiency of Jesus for us. Our lives, our families, our church, our worship, our praying, our preaching, our time together, our purpose in the community and a large around us, that we keep holding up and holding out the sufficiency of Jesus, that he is bigger than all of the challenges and obstacles and distractions and worldly pleasures and efforts that can distract us from following him. That King Jesus in just his glory and greatness is enough. But then the fact that he comes to us in his grace and his goodness spurs us on all the more. A renewed perspective of this Jesus. He's not weak. He's not far. He's not indifferent. He's the king and he's glorious and he's great and he's near and he's gracious and he's merciful. And he's standing at the door and he's knocking and he says, I'm right here. We need a renewed perspective of Jesus. And and from that, we realize that we are able to have that renewed perspective because of his grace, because of what he has done for us in the gospel. 
Therefore, it spills into a renewed passion for the gospel. A renewed passion for the gospel. And when we consider the gospel, it does two things. The gospel obliterates and supplies. It obliterates us. That's good. You need to be obliterated. You need to be obliterated of your self-sufficiency and self-reliance and self-worship. And it supplies. It supplies all that you think you can do on your own, <laughs> and you can't. It actually gives, actually gives more than we could possibly know. What do I mean by all this? Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Here's where the gospel obliterates. <laughs> Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do we think we're okay, but we're very far from okay? As a church, do we think, oh, we got to figure it out. We can just cruise through the rest of this life. Yeah, it's no big deal. Or do we as individuals think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically good. I, I, I'm basic, you know, I'm, I'm good enough, right? It's a curve. As long as we take Jesus' grade out of there, then we all should pass, right? Yeah, that kind of curve, right? Um, we so need to to have our notions of self-sufficiency or self-reliance or even self-worship obliterated. And here, this complacent church had some sort of self-sufficiency as a church. They thought they were fine. Nah, we're good. There are people who don't know anything about Jesus. They don't even know the Bible. They don't even know any of the stories that you would ever tell them. Is that a fine? Nah, we're good. Complacent. We need a renewed passion for the gospel because it obliterates that self-sufficiency. But then it also provides abundantly for what we truly need. Look in at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. What were they just described as? Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. They don't have any resources. And yet King Jesus graciously says, come, you without money, come buy. Isaiah 55, buy. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness, may not be seen in this, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What an incredible verse. All that God demands, God supplies through the gospel. Freely, incredibly, graciously, mercifully. And he says, Come. You have nothing, and I will give you everything. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that, that a sovereign God has graciously rescued sinners through the sacrifice of his son, a sacrifice so sufficient that there is nothing left for us to face. Not an ounce of our sin are we on the hook for. You don't have to have like a 97% and Jesus covers the last 3%. No, he gives 100% to us and he takes our failing grade and he takes it on and he absorbs it. And we don't carry the weight of a failing grade anymore because he has taken it and instead has given us his righteousness. This is incredible. This is the good news. This is the gospel that is to be alive and well in the life of a church. That we'd be renewed passion for this. 
that it would be a renewed passion for the gospel in our churches, that where we get to delight in and rejoice over and make much of is that our unrighteousness created a canyon between us and God, and Christ's righteousness is given to us, and it's so vast that it's not just a bridge across the canyon. His righteousness and grace are so vast that it floods the canyon, that there is no more canyon. This is amazing. This is the good news. And you didn't do anything to deserve it or earn it or merit it. God purposed it before you ever had breath in your lungs. Before he ever said, let there be light. He purposed to overflow his grace and mercy into a redeemed people. A church to be passion, renewed passion around that. What would that do to our corporate worship when we're gathered together? What would it do to the nature and character of our community when there's a renewed passion around all that God has done for us in the gospel? And what would that do to our mission? How would we see ourselves in New England or in Nashua? How would we live with a renewed passion together as a church? How eager would we be to have people who are different than us, who have all kinds of backstories, don't fit a profile of any kind other than other than pitiable and and what what else did we have there oh shoot i lost it wretched pitiable poor blind and naked that comes in all kinds of shapes sizes colors and dynamics what if that flooded our church oh that would be amazing hungry thirsty weak weary people coming and they're getting How amazing would that be? Complacency in a church reveals an indifference over the sin-taking, righteous, giving, good news of Jesus. An indifference over that. Oh, may that not be so for us. To be meh about the gospel. May that not be so here. We may not ever have all the bells and whistles, and that's okay. We probably don't want all the bells and whistles. Knowing anything, like in our worship and our sound team would be able to testify to this. If we had all the bells and whistles, something would go wrong, right? At 1025. Yeah? Yeah? Amens? Yes? Yeah, thank you. I hear that. I see that hand. All right. We don't need all the bells and whistles. We need a genuine people with a renewed perspective of Jesus and a renewed passion of the gospel, living that out together, honestly and perfectly. Yeah, yeah. But, but with great purpose. And that leads us to our third one, a renewed purpose for mission. And we, as an overflow, I hope you feel this like as a cascading down, like one glorious waterfall down into the next, down into the next. So the top one being a renewed perspective of Jesus that just, just is a beautiful waterfall down into the next one, which is a renewed passion for the gospel, which is in another waterfall down into this another vista, which is a renewed purpose for mission where we 
take seriously and joyfully a passionate pursuit of making much of Jesus, making much of Christ, that we would passionately pursue making much of Christ. The church in Laodicea did nothing to make much of the gospel. They did nothing. Their hearts were clogged with the fatty tissue of complacency. Look at verse 19. Jesus, again, graciously calling them out from their complacency, says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's bringing a strong and stinging word to them, but, for, but out of love and for, for glorious purposes. And so he says, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. To be zealous means to passionately pursue. That is to live with great purpose. To see the awesome privilege of knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, living with Jesus, and making much of Jesus to others. And Jesus loves us, his church, too much to let us get complacent. And so he, he calls, he knocks, and he says, be with me and you will see. He says, turn away from your complacency, get up off of the couch, come with me into this glorious mission that we have, and I will strengthen you, and I will be with you all the way to the very end of the age, make much of me, and others will come and see, and they too will join and live their lives out because of my grace and to my glory. The church in Laodicea was not witnessing to the grace and glory of Christ through the gospel. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we bust out the evangelism tracks, but it does mean this call to passionately pursue and making much of Christ starts here and just floods out. We together need to treasure Jesus. We together need to know what we treasure in Jesus. So we're growing at knowing him and loving him and enjoying him and living for him. And then we need to make together, make much of what we treasure in Christ. There's no shortcut to that. There's no pitch. The gospel of Christ is a treasure unto itself. And we just get the joyful privilege of making much of that. In our lives, in our devotions, in our family devotions, in our life groups, in our studies that gather together, when we're rehearsing, or when we're prepping for ministry in other ways, when we're serving in our food pantry. All these ways can be informed and, in, and, and enlivened with a renewed purpose on mission. New England, Nashua, is desperate for a church that passionately pursues making much of Christ. That it, that that there's a church and more churches and more churches that are purposed to hold out the treasure of the gospel. Oh, would God renew that zeal and joy and hope in us? That he would do it. That he would do it in us. Why not, Trinity? Why not? It's his spirit at work through his people, so why not us? Just as room temperature coffee robs coffee of its rich, layered flavors, so does a complacent church rob its witness 
of the rich, layered flavors of the gospel. It repels the drinker away from the drink. In the same way, a complacent church repels thirsty people. Trinity, let us be that hot cup of coffee that awakens us to the greatness of Jesus. Let us be that cold brew that we savor just as we savor the grace of our King. And may others come and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and kindness. And we pray that we would hear your knock, your call, that we as a church family would be renewed, renewed by means of the gospel, renewed by a perspective of Jesus that enlarges our hearts, engages our minds, that we would be renewed with a passion for all that you have done for us through the good news of Christ. And that it would overflow into being a church that is renewed with purpose on mission, eager to share our lives in such a way that we get to point others to you. And may you do this good work, we pray and plead and ask. In Christ's name, amen.